short story today. Welcome to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. My name is John DeSavino, and I'll be your host. I thought I'd start today's episode by giving you a bit of a preview of what's in store for the podcast in the very near future. I know this will probably come as a disappointment to some of my regular listeners who enjoy hearing me read these old chestnuts that I've been able to find from some of the great authors, and I have to admit that I'm feeling a little wistful about leaving that behind myself because I've been loving every minute of it. So needless to say, this new venture is going to be bittersweet for me. If you've been anywhere near any of the social media pages that I use to promote the podcast, you'll have noticed that I'm starting to get the word out that there's a big shift about to take place next month. I've been referring to it as a reboot because I'll be taking the podcast in a very different direction. It'll be about short stories, of course. I'm not changing the name or the basic concept behind the podcast, but the emphasis will move from the past to the present and hopefully the future of short stories. The name I came up with for this podcast, Short Story Today, I arrived at through compromise. It wasn't my first choice or even my second or third. I ended up choosing it because the names that I kept coming up with were already taken. I was trying to go for something clever like short story long or long story short or that's the story, but they were all taken. So when I kept striking out, the best thing I could come up with was something that seemed very utilitarian to me, and kind of boring. Short story today, and I wasn't initially thrilled with it, but I realized as I began to put it into action that it is actually quite a good name. It states in no uncertain terms what the podcast is about, which is the most important thing the name of the podcast can do. It tells you exactly what you're getting, me reading you a short story today. But soon after I began creating episodes, the double meaning of the word today began to seem like a glaring irony. I'm reading you a story literally today, present tense, but these are not stories from today. They're from yesterday, many yesterdays ago, in fact, because that's all I'm allowed to read due to copyright laws. Really old stuff. That's not to say that the really old stuff isn't great, but it would be naive to think that the content here is going to have a broad appeal to a contemporary audience. So for the podcast, the other meaning of the word today is not true at all. I haven't been reading stories from today, so it may have felt like a cheat to some who first started listening uh, who might have expected that. What I had no way of knowing when I started this is what I would encounter when reaching out to the writing community as I was working on increasing engagement and building a following for the podcast, particularly on Twitter. It seemed like one of the obvious places to start would be to reach out to the writing community, and readers, of course, but for some reason writers were always on my mind. So as I began to connect with them and read their tweets, I was getting a picture of the kinds of daily challenges they were faced with and the difficulties of getting their work out above the ever-increasing noise of the marketplace. And it slowly began to dawn on me that maybe this podcast could be a place for emerging writers to get a unique kind of exposure for their work. The frustrations inherent in having your talent be seen and heard are something which, as an actor, I'm all too familiar with. It's true of all the arts that very talented people are often languishing in the shadows, and even with a lot of hard work, without luck, odds are that that's not going to change very much. 
The beauty of the internet as it relates to the writing world is that there are a lot of online literary journals that can be read for free online, and that is where a lot of this talent can be found if you're inclined to look for it. I've been able to discover a lot of wonderful voices in wonderful journals like the Westchester Review, and it thrills me to know that I'll be giving a literal voice here on the podcast to some of their stories. So starting on May 11th, the first episode of the Reconceived Short Story Today podcast will debut. I can't get over how lucky I've been in finding these writers merely by chance. Well, that and a lot of enjoyable reading in these journals. My first guest will be John Henry Fleming, a writer and professor in the creative writing program at the University of Southern Florida. With the help of some of his grad students, he created a unique literary review which focuses on Florida living and Florida writers, called the Saw Palm Review. Burrow Press has published a brilliant collection of his short stories entitled Songs for the Deaf, which I'll be reading from on the May 11th episode, and I can hardly wait. And now we return to our regularly scheduled programming, which is the reading of a short story, and today we're going to break with tradition and bring you an encore episode with a story by the same author whose work we read last week, Virginia Woolf, whose work I can never get enough of. When I was reading her stories to choose one for last week's podcast episode, I couldn't make up my mind because there were so many good ones, and so I'm not going to just stop at one. I'm going to move ahead with story number two from Virginia Woolf, entitled Solid Objects. It's about a young man who is at the beginning of what looks like a promising political career, who, while at the beach one day, unearths an unusual object, and the discovery provokes in him a compulsion to find more of these kinds of objects, which, as you might expect, has a profound impact on the course of his life. So here it is, Solid Objects, by Virginia Woolf. The only thing that moved upon the vast semicircle of the beach was one small black spot. As it came nearer to the ribs and spine of the stranded pilchard boat, it became apparent from a certain tenuity in its blackness that this spot possessed four legs, and moment by moment it became more unmistakable that it was composed of the persons of two young men, even thus an outline against the sand, there was an unmistakable vitality in them, an indescribable vigor in the approach and withdrawal of the bodies, slight though it was, which proclaimed some violent argument issuing from the tiny mouths of the little round heads. This was corroborated on closer view by the repeated lunging of a walking-stick on the right-hand side. "'You mean to tell me—' "'You actually believe?' Thus the walking-stick on the right-hand side next to the waves seemed to be asserting as it cut long straight stripes upon the sand. "'Politics be damned!' issued clearly from the body on the left-hand side, and as these words were uttered, the mouths, noses, chins, little moustaches, tweed caps— Rough boots, shooting coats, and check stockings of the two speakers became clearer and clearer. The smoke of their pipes went up into the air. Nothing was so solid, so living, 
so hard, red, hirsute, and virile, as these two bodies for miles and miles of sea and sandhill. They flung themselves down by the six ribs and spine of the black pilchard boat. You know how the body seems to shake itself free from an argument and to apologize for a mood of exaltation, flinging itself down and expressing in the looseness of its attitude a readiness to take up with something new, whatever it may be that comes next to hand. So Charles, whose stick had been slashing the beach for half a mile or so, began skimming flat pieces of slate over the water, and John, who had exclaimed, Politics be damned, began burrowing his fingers down, down into the sand. As his hand went further and further beyond the wrist, so that he had to hitch his sleeve a little higher, his eyes lost their intensity, or rather the background of thought and experience which gives an inscrutable depth to the eyes of grown people disappeared, leaving only the clear transparent surface, expressing nothing but wonder which the eyes of young children display. No doubt the act of burrowing in the sand had something to do with it. He remembered that, after digging for a little, the water oozes round your fingertips. The hole then becomes a moat, a well, a spring, a secret channel to the sea. As he was choosing which of these things to make it, still working his fingers in the water, they curled round something hard, a full drop of solid matter, and gradually dislodged a large irregular lump and brought it to the surface. When the sand coating was wiped off, a green tint appeared. It was a lump of glass, so thick as to be almost opaque. The smoothing of the sea had completely worn off any edge or shape, so that it was impossible to say whether it had been bottle, tumbler, or window-pane. It was nothing but glass. It was almost a precious stone. You had only to enclose it in a rim of gold or pierce it with a wire, and it became a jewel, part of a necklace, or a dull green light upon a finger. Perhaps, after all, it was really a gem, something worn by a dark princess trailing her finger in the water as she sat in the stern of the boat, and listened to the slaves singing as they rowed her across the bay, or the oak sides of a sunk Elizabethan treasure-chest had split apart and rolled over and over, over and over. Its emeralds had come at last to shore. John turned it in his hands. He held it to the light. He held it so that its irregular mass blotted out the body and extended right arm of his friend. The green thinned and thickened slightly as it was held against the sky or against the body. It pleased him. It puzzled him. It was so hard, so concentrated, so definite an object compared with the vague sea and the hazy shore. Now a sigh disturbed him, profound, final, making him aware that his friend Charles had thrown all the flat stones within reach, or had come to the conclusion that it was not worth while to throw them. They ate their sandwiches side by side. When they had done and were shaking themselves and rising to their feet, John took the lump of glass and looked at it in silence. Charles looked at it too, but he saw immediately that it was not flat, and filling his pipe he said with the energy that dismisses a foolish strain of thought, To return to what I was saying, he did not see, or if he had seen would hardly have noticed, 
that John, after looking at the lump for a moment, as if in hesitation, slipped it inside his pocket. That impulse, too, may have been the impulse which leads a child to pick up one pebble on a path strewn with them, promising it a life of warmth and security upon the nursery mantelpiece, delighting in the sense of power and benignity which such an action confers, and believing that the heart of the stone leaps with joy when it sees itself chosen from a million like it, to enjoy this bliss instead of a life of cold and wet upon the high road. It might so easily have been any other of the millions of stones, but it was I, I, I. Whether this thought or not was in John's mind, the lump of glass had its place upon the mantelpiece, where it stood heavy upon a little pile of bills and letters, and served not only as an excellent paperweight, but also as a natural stopping place for the young man's eyes when they wandered from his book. Looked at again and again half-consciously by a mind thinking of something else, any object mixes itself so profoundly with the stuff of thought that it loses its actual form and recomposes itself a little differently in an ideal shape which haunts the brain when we least expect it. So John found himself attracted to the windows of curiosity shops when he was out walking, merely because he saw something which reminded him of the lump of glass. Anything, so long as it was an object of some kind, more or less round, perhaps with a dying flame deep sunk in its mass, anything, china, glass, amber, rock, marble, even the smooth oval egg of a prehistoric bird would do, he took also to keeping his eyes upon the ground, especially in the neighborhood of wasteland where the household refuse is thrown away. Such objects often occurred there, thrown away of no use to anybody, shapeless, discarded. In a few months he had collected four or five specimens that took their place upon the mantelpiece. They were useful, too, for a man who is standing for Parliament upon the brink of a brilliant career has any number of papers to keep in order— addresses to constituents, declarations of policy, appeals for subscriptions, invitations to dinner, and so on. One day, starting from his rooms in the temple to catch a train in order to address his constituents, his eyes rested upon a remarkable object lying half-hidden in one of those little borders of grass which edged the bases of vast legal buildings. He could only touch it with the point of his stick through the railings, but he could see that it was a piece of china of the most remarkable shape, as nearly resembling a starfish as anything, shaped or broken accidentally into five irregular but unmistakable points. The coloring was mainly blue, but green stripes or spots of some kind overlaid the blue, and lines of crimson gave it a richness and luster of the most attractive kind. John was determined to possess it, but the more he pushed, the further it receded. At length he was forced to go back to his rooms and improvise a wire ring attached to the end of a stick, with which, by dint of great care and skill, he finally drew the piece of china within reach of his hands. As he seized hold of it, he exclaimed in triumph. At that moment the clock struck. It was out of the question that he should keep his appointment. The meeting was held without him. But how had the piece of china been broken into this remarkable shape? A careful examination put it beyond doubt that the star shape was accidental, 
which made it all the more strange, and it seemed unlikely that there should be another such in existence, set at the opposite end of the mantelpiece from the lump of glass that had been dug from the sand. It looked like a creature from another world, freakish and fantastic as a harlequin. It seemed to be pirouetting through space, winking light like a fitful star. The contrast between the china so vivid and alert and the glass so mute and contemplative fascinated him, and wondering and amazed he asked himself how the two came to exist in the same world, let alone to stand upon the same narrow strip of marble in the same room. The question remained unanswered. He now began to haunt the places which are most prolific of broken china, such as pieces of wasteland between railway lines, sites of demolished houses, and commons in the neighborhood of London. But China is seldom thrown from a great height. It is one of the rarest of human actions. You have to find in conjunction a very high house and a woman of such reckless impulse and passionate prejudice that she flings her jar or pot straight from the window without thought of who is below. Broken china was to be found in plenty, but broken in some trifling domestic accident without purpose or character. Nevertheless, he was often astonished as he came to go into the question more deeply by the immense variety of shapes to be found in London alone, and there was still more cause for wonder and speculation in the differences of qualities and designs. The finest specimens he would bring home and place upon his mantelpiece, where, however, their duty was more and more of an ornamental nature, since papers needing a weight to keep them down became scarcer and scarcer. He neglected his duties, perhaps, or discharged them absent-mindedly, or his constituents, when they visited him, were unfavorably impressed by the appearance of his mantelpiece. At any rate, he was not elected to represent them in Parliament, and his friend Charles, taking it much to heart and hurrying to condole with him, found him so little cast down by the disaster that he could only suppose that it was too serious a matter for him to realize all at once. In truth, John had been that day to Barnes Common, and there under a furze bush had found a very remarkable piece of iron. It was almost identical with the glass in shape, massy and globular, but so cold and heavy, so black and metallic, that it was evidently alien to the earth, and had its origin in one of the dead stars, or was itself the cinder of a moon. It weighed his pocket down, it weighed the mantelpiece down, it radiated cold, and yet the meteorite stood upon the same ledge with a lump of glass and the star-shaped china. As his eyes passed from one to another, the determination to possess objects that even surpassed these tormented the young man. He devoted himself more and more resolutely to the search. If he had not been consumed by ambition and convinced that one day some newly discovered rubbish heap would reward him, the disappointments he had suffered, let alone the fatigue and derision, would have made him give up the pursuit. Provided with a bag and a long stick fitted with an adaptable hook, he ransacked all deposits of earth, raked beneath matted tangles of scrub, searched all alleys and spaces between walls where he had learned to expect to find objects of this kind thrown away. 
As his standard became higher and his taste more severe, the disappointments were innumerable, but always some gleam of hope, some piece of china or glass curiously marked or broken lured him on. Day after day passed. He was no longer young. His career, that is, his political career, was a thing of the past. People gave up visiting him. He was too silent to be worth asking to dinner. He never talked to anyone about his serious ambitions. Their lack of understanding was apparent in their behavior. He leaned back in his chair now and watched Charles lift the stones on the mantelpiece a dozen times and put them down emphatically to mark what he was saying about the conduct of the government without once noticing their existence. "'What was the truth of it, John?' asked Charles suddenly, turning and facing him. "'What made you give it up like that, all in a second? "'I've not given it up,' John replied. "'But you've not the ghost of a chance now,' said Charles, roughly. "'I don't agree with you there,' said John with conviction. Charles looked at him and was profoundly uneasy. The most extraordinary doubts possessed him. He had a queer sense that they were talking about different things— he looked round to find some relief for his horrible depression, but the disorderly appearance of the room depressed him still further. What was that stick, and the old carpet-bag hanging against the wall, and then those stones? Looking at John, something fixed and distant in his expression alarmed him. He knew only too well that his mere appearance upon a platform was out of the question. "'Pretty stones!' he said as cheerfully as he could, and saying that he had an appointment to keep, he left John forever. I think there's a part of all of us that can relate to what John is going through on some level, the desire to lose oneself in the pursuit of something unique and rare, something that's beautiful in some way, at least to us. You may remember that moment early in the story when one of the men is heard saying, politics be damned, and then it's attributed to John later on. A good example of foreshadowing. Wolf provides a subtle, or not so subtle, clue to the nature of this gentleman, John, who it appears is not completely sold on the idea of being a politician, and probably should have thought about becoming an archaeologist instead, or an interior decorator. I thought I'd share a personal anecdote that relates indirectly to Virginia Woolf, which has to do with the first association I had with her, which was in name only. The first time I ever heard the name Virginia Woolf was in 1966, when the Mike Nichols film of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf had just been released, starring Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, who were at the time the Brangelina of their day. I was 11 years old, and I was really into movies, even as a kid, so I was picking up on all the buzz around the film when it first came out. Of course, it got so much attention mainly because of the stars, but it was also the first time in a while that a major film was made from a very important play, and a rather controversial one at that. So I knew nothing of Virginia Woolf other than that her name was in this very peculiar title, Another film adaptation of a play came out at around the same time with the title Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad. And I thought, who's writing these plays with these weird titles and what's that all about? 
And that started me reading plays before I had any idea that I would end up in the theater as an actor. But getting back to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, to an 11-year-old, that title made me so curious about what it could be referring to, because I knew the song from the Disney cartoon with the three little pigs, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? So I understood even then that it was a play on words, but I couldn't imagine what it meant. And that is the brilliance of Edward Albee. He knew that that was a title that would stick in people's heads, one they couldn't forget. And it was only years later that I understood who she was, Virginia Woolf, and why that joke was so sly and clever at the way it poked fun at the effete kind of intellectualism found in academia. So it's impossible for me to separate those two things when I see or hear her name, and I suspect that's probably true for a number of people who grew up in the 60s. I'd like to remind listeners once again about the literary history podcast Get Lit, which profiles literary figures like Virginia Woolf in episodes which typically run at about 30 minutes, but are full of entertaining and enlightening information about the author. The Virginia Woolf episode is episode number 65, and I highly recommend that you look for it on their website at www.getlitpodcast.com, or you can download the episode from your favorite podcast source. Well, we've come to the end of episode 14. Thanks for joining me. You've been listening to Short Story Today, where we celebrate short stories and the authors who write them. You gotta take some time to read a short story today.